We have been tackling a short series that addresses disabled people in the Bible. Something I don't think I've ever heard you know, anybody speak about before. It's almost like many times we don't acknowledge uh, disabilities in church. I don't, know, I don't know why that is. And so recently, having broken my left arm, I have been uh, inspired to think about um, some of the stories in the Bible that are so very clear uh, dealing with disabled people. So for those of you who are visiting, um, broke the left arm March 24, had surgery April 2, and I'm still trying to recover. I have hand therapy usually twice a week. Um, it's not that the bones aren't strong, it's that my dexterity is still far from being what it needs to be. And uh, one of the things I even have a hard time doing is holding this iPad in my left hand for very long, which is what I used to always do, and now I have a difficult time doing it. So you see me pass it off like a little ball in my hands from time to time, a little football. Um, and uh, I've learned, you know, from doing that just how incredibly I miss being able to, to do something. Last night I was at my other congregation, the Good Neighbor Church, and somebody uh, handed me their guitar, and I've taken a few lessons of guitar, and I thought, you know, I was thinking maybe I should try to pick it up again. It might be good at therapy for my left hand. And I tried to wrap my hand around the neck of that guitar, and I found that my wrist did not want to bend very well. And more importantly, I can't make my fingers do this. And so that's it. That's, a, that's as far as I can get them to go. So trying to pull a D chord was very painful. And uh, so I, I'm inspired to think about some of the people who are disabled. Now, if you're visiting today, I'm, I'm terribly sorry to tell you that you are on the second part of a, of a multi-part uh, sermon. Thank you, Nancy. And uh, we started talking about a man whose name is Mephibosheth. We've talked about you know, the man at the pool of Bethesda. We've even talked about Lazarus who got sick and then died. We forget that disabilities involve a, a, a wide range of problems, right? Very end times. So Mephibosheth is uh, a young boy who uh, had some issues. And uh, you remember last week that I told you that a whole group of new scholars, biblical scholars, have kind of arisen out of a disability rights movement. That, that disability rights movement was pretty much made up of veterans to begin with, right? They wanted to see people with disabilities being treated better. And so they began to work towards that goal. And from there, a group of biblical scholars decided they would form a group and they have studied uh, all the different, you know, kind of uh, publications about disabled people and disabilities. And they put together, you know, uh, helpful kind of, uh, what can I say, methodologies for how to study the, the stories of people in the Bible who are disabled. 
And then you will recall also that there is a Jewish scholar who has come along and he said, look, how can we tell whether somebody's being portrayed as, as morally good or morally bad in the Bible? And he's put out before us an ordered outline. Here's what you need to kind of look at in order to determine whether or not a person is good or bad. And he's ranked them. Uh, the narrator's comments, you know, in the Bible, um, you miss some elements there, but at least the narrator is always accurate. And then, of course, the narrator offers us sometimes God's assessment, and God is always spot on. And then there were some middle categories involving speech, direct speech, speech from the actual character themselves, or maybe from someone who is interacting with them, who is talking about them or to them. And then there was inward speech, where a person in the Bible talks to themselves. I do it all the time. I mean, I'm glad to know that it's in the Bible. It's biblical to talk to yourself, right? People do it. It's the way we humans reflect on things from time to time. And on the lower end, he said, there are actions and appearances. Uh, they're not too good uh, when it comes to determine whether or not a person is righteous or wicked. So we looked at some of that, you know, and we could give some examples about that later, and we will. Um, and then we took a look at all the different places in the Bible where Mephibosheth's story is related to us. Where can we go to find information out about this young man? And we saw 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, 9, verses 1 to 13, 16, verses 1 to 4, 19, verses 24 to 30, 21, verse 7, in second, all in 2 Samuel. And then there's some genealogies in 1 Chronicles 8 and 9 that speak about this young man. Here's where we found his story. Now, I'd like to cover all of that again for the visitor's sake, but it would just take too much time. So I'm hoping that some of you who are visiting today actually know some of this part of the story. But after reading these portions of the scriptures, and I, I will, maybe I'll try a short recap. It goes a little bit like this. In 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, we are told that when King Saul and his son, Prince Jonathan, were killed in battle, the news traveled back, and a nurse, thinking that her young charge, Mephibosheth, might be slaughtered as a sort of cleansing of the kingdom, she picked him up and ran, and she dropped him, and she crippled him for the rest of his life. He was five years old when this happened. Okay, So he knew what it was like to be a walking you know, mobile person, a typical boy, no doubt. Maybe even more so because he was the son of a prince and the grandson of a king. Um, and then in chapter 9, we have David who says, you know, is there anybody left in Saul's family that I could show God's kindness to? And uh, so he finds a man named Ziba, who was uh, Saul's chief servant. And... Uh, Ziba tells him about Mephibosheth and that he is a crippled person. And David calls him in to, to the throne room there. And he, you know, Mephibosheth throws himself down. He's very deferential uh, to King David. And David says, look, don't, don't be afraid here. I, I, I want to give you everything that belonged to your grandfather. What's more, I want you to eat your meals with me. Well, that's a pretty generous offer from a competitor, right? 
And then in chapter 16, David, you know, has been attacked by his own son Absalom. He flees Jerusalem, and, and on his way out, Ziba, who is now the servant of Mephibosheth by David's order, he meets David on the way out, and he's got animals, and he's got food, and he's just got all kinds of stuff for, for David. And David says, where's Mephibosheth? You know, I thought maybe he would run with me. And Ziba says, no, he entertains grandiose dreams that uh, he will become king now that you're on the outs. Oh, David said, well, in that case, you can take everything that I gave Mephibosheth that now belongs to you. And off David goes. When David returns in chapter 19, Ziba comes down with a group of other people. Unfortunately, Ziba is in the company of a guy who has literally cursed David on David's way out of Jerusalem. You bloody man, you're getting what you finally deserve. Good riddance to you, the man says. That man rushes down to greet the king again, and Ziba is in his company, along with his 15 sons and their 20 servants. And they begin doing everything they can to get David and his whole entourage back into the city. And Mephibosheth shows up there, and I don't know if Ziba's still there or not, I can't tell. But Mephibosheth, and, and David says, <laughs> you know, what's going on, you know, kind of thing. And Mephibosheth says, my servant lied to you. I told him to prepare me a donkey. And the implication is, he didn't do it. He left me behind. And he goes on, you know, I'm just so glad that you're back here. In fact, he ultimately says, you know what, David says, you know what, I've changed my mind. Now you can take half, and Ziva can take half, and, and Mephibosheth says, let him have it all. I'm just glad you're back home. Then in chapter 21, we read about how uh, Saul has persecuted and oppressed the Gibeonite people. The Israelites had made them a promise of safety, and, and they could interact with them all the, you know, all the, all the rest of their lives. And uh, Saul apparently had been trying to kill them. And uh, there's a famine that hits the land because of that for like three years. And David goes to God and he goes, so what's up? And God says, it's because of the Gibeonites. So David goes to them and he says, how can I make amends? They say, we want seven of Saul's family put to death. Well, that puts Mephibosheth in a world of hurt. And David says, okay. And he began searching for Saul's family. He finds uh, some children of Michael, David's ex-wife. Uh, well, actually, not ex, his wife. Um, her sister, Merib, she has some sons. And David takes five of them. He puts them to death, a couple others. He spares Mephibosheth because of a promise that David had made Jonathan. Okay? And then in the genealogies, we learn that Mephibosheth had a child. And his child had children. And Saul's line continues on. Okay, there's a recap of what all we can read about this man, Mephibosheth. Crippled at the age of five. Not healed like the stories you find about Jesus and disabled people. He has to live with his disability the rest of his life, knowing what it was like to not be disabled. Now that is more like what many of us discover. I mean, I've already been told by the people I see, there is a pretty good chance you will not regain everything you've lost in terms of range of motion. Whoa, you know. It's not 
it, it doesn't go down easily. <laughs> you can't swallow that easily. Uh, and I'm hoping for more than what I certainly have now. But after people read these stories about Mephibosheth and Ziba, they began asking questions. For example, is David's kindness toward others, you know, his primary motive? Or is it the old story, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? I mean, Solomon certainly did that with a guy named Shammai, who figures into the story of Ziba and Mephibosheth. Why is Ziba so forthcoming in his response to David's questions? You know, if the idea was to hide Mephibosheth to protect him from potentially being killed by a competitor, David, why volunteer the information so freely? David calls uh, Saul, Ziba's master, multiple times. Ziba never acknowledges that, oddly enough. Does Mephibosheth's name or his location in Lodibar uh, offer hints about his character? People have asked that. Does Mephibosheth's deference offer clues about his real thoughts? Throws himself down on his face. That couldn't have been easy for a disabled person. Calls himself David's servant. Uh, is Mephibosheth's self-deprecation? Calls himself a dead dog at one part. How does Ziba really feel about serving Mephibosheth, being his servant? That's a question people ask. And then, of course, Ziba's emergency response, helping David. Extremely well thought out. It's, uh, so is his answer to David? Is it calculating or kind? Who do the resources that he gives to David belong to? Do they belong to Mephibosheth or do they belong to Ziba? Is he being generous or, you know, is he... Um, trying to suck up to David in some way to get in his good graces. Does Ziba tell the truth regarding Mephibosheth, you know, that he wanted to become king? And was David too hasty in giving Ziba the property that he had formerly given Mephibosheth? Well, the people who come out to greet King David uh, are the entire, apparently, tribe of Judah, a man named Shammai who curses David when he's running away, uh, a thousand men from the tribe of Benjamin, that would be the folk that Saul's family is from. And uh, with Ziba and his 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Mephibosheth shows up, and then a guy named Barzillai the Gileadite. Some of these people come across in the biblical stories as being good people, righteous people. Others we're not so sure about, and some we're very sure about. Shammai, I, you know, unless the man had a complete change of heart, he looks like a schmuck. But all of these parties might color our understanding of Mephibosheth, his disability, and how it plays out. And then, of course, when we get to all that, how can we sort out motives? I mean, has Ziba come to really help David? And the narrator of the biblical story seems to agree Ziba is Saul, or Saul's grandson's servant. He's not necessarily David's. The company that Ziba keeps when he comes with Shammai, I mean, uh, is that good or bad? Did you note uh, when we read through the passage earlier about, you know, when all those people came down to help David and his family come back, there were words like they hurried, they rushed, they kept crossing, they did everything they could do to please David. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, we'll maybe see that text again. How hard these people worked to make a good impression on David as he was returning 
and being coming king again. How can we discover the motives of these people? Which man told the truth, Mephibosheth or Ziba? How should we interpret the actions and appearance of these people who greet David? And did David do the right thing when he changed his mind once again? And this time divided the land between Ziba and Mephibosheth? So I want to pick up on a few of these things. One of the things that I've noticed when I read the story is very clear on one side, the narrator David and Mephibosheth are crystal on this matter. Ziba is the servant of Saul and his family. They, they say it over and over and over again. And you can see it. Ziba is called the servant of the household of Saul in chapter 9, verse 2. The king called for Saul's servant Ziba, 9, verse 9. David says, I'm giving everything to your master's grandson, 9, 9. Uh, 9 verse 12, all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. Again, the narrator, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, 16 verse 1. David, where is your master's son? Speaking of Saul, right? Chapter 16 verse 3, Mephibosheth, my servant deceived me. Very clear. Yet, oddly enough, when Ziba speaks, he never seems to consciously, candidly acknowledge his relationship to Saul's family. He's constantly trying to almost ingratiate himself with David. I'm your servant. I'm the king's servant, your servant. Repeatedly says those kinds of things. This makes me wonder how Ziba actually feels about being Mephibosheth's servant, right? How do you feel about serving someone who's disabled? That's a question that this story makes me consciously think about. How do you feel? The other day, we were at a picnic together at a Rooks Park. And I saw a man struggling to get his wheelchair out of a bunch of tree roots so that he could go over and use the restroom there at Roots Park. So I ran over there to help him. I grabbed his wheelchair. I said, you headed to the bathroom? He said, yes. And I pushed him over. I asked him if he wanted me to take him back. He said, no, I think we're getting ready to leave. Even just thinking about some of these Bible stories has made me you know, I would have probably noticed it anyway, but it's made me more conscious about the needs of people who are disabled. Could it do the same for you? So what about, say, Mephibosheth's appearance? I mean, we read about it. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, came down from Jerusalem to meet the returning King David. And Mephibosheth had not cared for his feet. Whoa, there's a problem right there trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes since the day the king left Jerusalem. Now, many people would say, you know, given the fact that he's got disabled feet, given the fact that, uh, you know, um, this looks very much like he's remorseful, he's sad over the idea that David has been gone, why would someone not believe that this guy is sincere? Well, it has something to do with the other biblical stories. They, they may not have a direct connection at times, but one of the things you read about in the Bible is people pretend to be someone they're not all the time. 
and uh, sometimes they're good people. They could be a prophet. One, guy, one prophet said, smack me, and the guy didn't, and so he was in trouble. And the next guy did smack the prophet. The guy put a, a, a bandage over him and then went out and greeted the king. A prophet did this, right? So good people do this kind of thing. But you remember the story of the Gibeonites and their appearance. But when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to deception to save themselves. They sent ambassadors to Joshua, loading their donkeys with weathered saddlebags and old patched wineskins. They put on worn-out patched sandals and ragged clothes, and the bread they took with them was dry and moldy. I mean, talk about an elaborate scheme to deceive people through appearance. This is why that Jewish scholar puts appearance and actions on the low end for helping you decipher character. Right? How can you tell if it's a good person or a bad person? There's more. You remember, when it comes to actions, uh, Mephibosheth, when he came to see David the first time, it says he fell on his face. Deep respect is how this translation puts it. And Mephibosheth says to David, I'm your servant. Isn't it clear then his motives, his character? But when we compare or contrast that with what Ziba is doing, you know, uh, he meets David the first time and he gives him all this stuff. And then he comes down to help David move back into Jerusalem. How do we determine which one is real and which one is phony? Or if either are real or both are phony. They both seem to be good, don't they? On the face of things. And then, of course, we wonder who told the truth. I mean... Ziva maintains that Mephibosheth wanted to become king. Mephibosheth's no way. Uh -uh. Who told the truth? Well, before we move on maybe to some other things here, I want to consider a problem that many people assume, you know, uh, they don't prove it so much, they assume it, uh, they assume that when Ziba says this, that there's no possible way that Mephibosheth could actually become king because Mephibosheth was disabled, as if being disabled would somehow prevent you from becoming king. And uh, I want to say first off, well, if that were the case, wouldn't you think that David would see right through that immediately? I mean, if it wasn't possible for this disabled young boy to become king, David would know the guy was lying. So, here's what I believe. There is no biblical law that prohibits disabled people from being king. The Hebrew words for sicknesses and injuries and disabilities are often vague, so you really don't know how bad off a person is or how well off they are. If they're called sick, they're sick. And several Israelite kings are actually labeled as sick in the Bible. So let me illustrate these real quickly. Here's a law that does prohibit people from doing a certain thing if they're disabled. Who does it prohibit? The Levites. 
Aaron's family, as it were. You cannot serve as a priest if you're disabled. Well, how does that apply to kings? The answer is it doesn't. It only applies to priests. It's religious leaders, not civil leaders. People often assume it's, often assume it's both, but it's not. Then, you know, there are these words for sickness in the Bible. The first one is when Michael, David's wife, uh, people are after him. Saul wants to put him to death. And uh, she says, well, he's in bed right now, sick. He can't come out. And they are just going to take the bed off and haul it to, to King Saul. And they find out that she has actually lied to them. She, she's put an idol and, and something in there to make it look like David's in bed. Well, how sick do you think David is at this point in terms of even in the imagination? What, a bad head cold? A fever? I mean, certainly not on death's door. But the next verse, clearly, if you have the problems listed in the next verse, you're in dire straits. You're going to die. And yet the same Hebrew word, halah, sick, applies to both. So, you know, these words in the Bible speaking about a person's illness are kind of vague. We wish they were a lot more clear. But they're not. Here, you know, maybe a head cold or a flu or something like it is, is likened to somebody who's going to die from a very difficult internal problem. And then several biblical kings are labeled as sick. I mean, Asa, Ahaziah, Joram, Ben-Hadad, Hezekiah, Jehoram. Regarding Asa in 1 Kings 15, 23, in his old age, his feet became diseased. That's what we read. So let me ask you, is it possible for a person with crippled feet to reign as king? Well, yeah. Seems pretty clear. And then, of course, you remember what happened to King David as he got older? Remember how his health went downhill? And he began to be cold all the time. And they found a way to remedy that. Odd for us to read, but it's obviously he's got a medical problem. Have you ever looked at this list and just typed this into your computer? Disabled American presidents. Here's a list that showed up when I did it. 11 possibilities. George Washington, they believe, had a form of dyslexia. Definitely had a spelling and grammar problem. Thomas Jefferson, stuttering and dyslexia. James Madison had epilepsy. Abraham Lincoln, severe depression. Theodore Roosevelt, nearsighted and bronchial asthma. Woodrow Wilson, dyslexia, a distinct reading problem. Franklin D. Roosevelt, paralyzed by polio. Uh, for the most part, they hid that. You rarely saw pictures of him in a wheelchair, but I'll show you one in a minute. Dwight D. Eisenhower, dyslexia. John F. Kennedy, dyslexia and chronic back pain. Ronald Reagan, nearsighted. Bill Clinton wore a hearing aid. Did you know that? You couldn't hear the upper range notes. Can a person reign and be crippled? Well, I think that answer is yes. So back to our earlier statements. It seems like all of these things would suggest to us that even though we can't say Ziba's accusation against Mephibosheth is correct, we can clearly say, well, yeah, he could have reigned. He could have reigned just because he's crippled doesn't mean anything. We read earlier that David wanted to do the right thing when he became king. He wanted to treat people as God wanted them treated. 
And so two situations immediately arose, and one of them was the ability to show God's, God's kindness to the family of Saul, and the other one was to show God's kindness to the family of an Ammonite king who had treated David well. And so David began to exercise this kindness, the kindness of God. In both cases, he was stepping out on a limb because even though he'd been well-treated by Jonathan and by Nahash, the king, the Ammonite king, it's true that in a larger sense, these people would be considered David's enemies. But David opted for unfailing love and not suspicion. In the Bible, the ideal leader offers justice to the disadvantaged people around them. In 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 to 4, we read, The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, The one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like, well, is like what? Is like the light of morning at sunrise. Do you like that? Like a morning without clouds. Like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. Wow. Why are all these fantastic images portrayed? Who would benefit from a king ruling righteously? Well, the Bible makes that clear. Psalm 72, 1 to 4. Give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all, and may the hills be fruitful. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy, and to crush their oppressors. It's the marginalized people in society, and that would certainly include the disabled, that would benefit by a king reigning righteously. A godly king was what? God inspired the nation to look for. Such a person, unfortunately, a bit rare. As we continue, though, through the Bible, and even though we've covered, as it were, in a recap, all of the different passages where Mephibosheth's story actually occurs, we can see a little bit of his shadow in other places. One is when we read, be kind to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, make them permanent guests at your table, this is what David tells his son Solomon. For they took care of me when I fled from your brother Absalom. Echoes of Mephibosheth appear, not only because Barzillai appeared at the same time, you know, at the same day as Mephibosheth when David was coming back to, to take over the kingdom again, uh, but also the idea that his family, Barzillai's family, would be given the privilege of eating at David's table. So there's a certain echo here, a shadow. And then, of course, you know, David gives some advice at the same time to Solomon. And he says, you know that guy, Shammai? Yeah, the one who cursed me and then later came back and helped me get back over the river and tried to treat me so well? Well, basically, I don't trust this guy. And I think you need to do something about him. Uh, and Solomon did. Uh, put him in a position where he pretty much needed to stay close, and he did not. He got greedy, and so Solomon had him executed. So we think about some of these people. We cannot help but ask, well, if he mentions Barzillai on the day he talks to Solomon, and he mentions Shammai, why did he not mention Mephibosheth? 
and Ziba on that same day to Solomon. Why not? And so in our mind, there's a shadow, an unanswered shadow. And then, of course, there's this passage. In the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim of Judah, Avil Merodach ascended to the Babylonian throne, and he was kind to Jehoiakim and released him from prison on April 2 of that year. And he spoke kindly to Jehoiakim and gave him a higher place than all the other exiled kings in Babylon. He supplied Jehoiakim with new clothes to replace his prison garb and allowed him to dine in the king's presence for the rest of his life. And so the king gave him a regular food allowance as long as he lived, 2 Kings 25. These verses might make us at first think about King Solomon. You remember when Solomon was there dedicating the temple? He said, you know, it's possible that your people will sin and maybe go into exile. And if they go into exile, God, and they begin to repent and they begin to pray to you, would you listen to their prayers and bring them back out of exile? Right? Would you forgive them? But particularly, he also says, would you make their captors merciful to them? Well, clearly... What happened to Jehoiakim is an answer to this prayer, right? Make their captors be kind to them. And God worked that out, right? But there's also an echo, a shadow of Mephibosheth. Because twice in Mephibosheth's story, he is told to continually eat at David's table, the king's table, and twice in Jehoiakim's story. The same word, tamid, which means daily, continually, is used to describe his experience. And there's a shadow cast. We start thinking about Mephibosheth again. Did David treat him well? Did he treat him well? There are links between Mephibosheth and David that are surprising to us. They make us think sometimes about uh, why did David do what he did? Did you know that uh, the biblical story says that um, Mephibosheth seems to have been cared for in some way, protected, maybe hidden away by a guy whose name is Makir? And uh, he is from Emil, or he's a son of Emil. He's from Lodibar. And uh, uh, that's where Mephibosheth is when David locates him and brings him to Jerusalem. Well, when David is, you know, kind of traveling around, you know, fleeing the country from his son Absalom, it just so happens that this Makir uh, from Lodibar, uh, it says, along with Barzillai and a guy named Shobi, they provided David's group with beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, meal, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese. In other words... Both Mephibosheth and David were treated extremely well by this man. Both of them. Why does that not make David think about Mephibosheth a little bit more seriously, a little bit more softly and kindly? Instead, of course, we read this. David flip-flopping. I'm going to give you everything, Mephibosheth, that belonged to your grandpa. Then he says to Ziba, take it all. It's all yours. If a guy wants to you know, be king, well, forget him. Boom, then he turns around and says again, well, you know what, I've decided you each get half. I believe that the kindness, God's kindness is what David called it, 
the kindness that he wanted to exercise towards Mephibosheth, towards Saul's family, I think it led Mephibosheth to, to express some serious courage. Serious courage. Mephibosheth gets the last word regarding his character. And what he says is, look, you know what? If Ziba wants it, let him have it. I'm just glad you're back home. I wonder sometimes when you and I think about people who are disabled, whether or not at times we do the right thing for them. But our love isn't very deep. It flip-flops. Sometimes we help them, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we'll help this person, not that person. Now, there may be occasions or reasons why at varying times, but there may also just be a problem with us. We're hard-hearted, cold-hearted. We don't see in this biblical story, I mean, Mephibosheth clearly says he needs help. I needed him to saddle my donkey. He didn't do it, the implication. I cannot help but wonder how well in my life I have treated disabled people. As I look back, have I chosen to lead my life, to lead my churches in a way that makes it clear that we have a heart for disabled people? Do you have a heart for disabled people? Do you exercise God's kindness towards them regularly, faithfully? or not.